Well, hey, it's another top books podcast from your friends here at Books of the Year. We are so happy to be here. It's Simon Mayo's Books of the Year. I'm Simon Mayo and this is Matt Williams. Hello. How are you, Matt? I'm very good. How are you? It's been uh, just a few days since I saw you last, but it's good to be back with you. Uh, And we're into the very rich autumn vein, uh, so loads of fantastic books coming very, very fast and furious. So unlike most podcasts, we're just, we're, we're going to sort of just to keep up with everything. Uh, this is a one author special. Yes, because normally we'd get two in, but yes. they're, they're just going to be coming so thick and fast over the awesome season because all the publishers want to get their big guns out in time for Christmas. Yes, although some great paperbacks come out they just do. after Christmas. <laughs> Of course, the the big guns also come out in spring, don't they? <laughs> that's um, right. On hardback and then later, uh, yeah. Paperback <laughs> at the back end of December. Yeah, that's right. Uh, anyway, so Sebastian Folks is our special guest today. So you're going to be here, Sebastian, talking about Paris Echo, which is his brand new book. Uh, I mean, where to start with Sebastian? We've interviewed him before, but uh, he's just he manages to be popular and literary. Imagine at the same How time. How can someone be both those things? Well, I like. I don't know. <laughs> It's all about me. It's, every it's time not. I toss these over the net. Yeah. Terrible. Because, because, <laughs> this is very bad. So, um, Birdsong, yeah. Charlotte Grey, mm-hmm. On Green Dolphin Street, Human Traces, Engleby, Devil May Care. Engleby was great, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, did a Bomb book, did a Jeeves book, A Week in December, I think was the last time I interviewed, which was 2009, so that's going back a bit. Anyway, so today is a Sebastian Folk special, but before we get to Sebastian, yes. more praise for us. Yes, less please. Uh, so this is coming from, it's an email to booksoftheyear at yes. yahoo.com. Is that booksoftheyear at yahoo.com? It, it, it is. Uh, Jane Fryer, who's got a very nice signature at the bottom, right, Jane. Uh, says, uh, Dear Simon and Matt, I just want to say how very much I'm enjoying your podcast. I've listened to them all at least twice. Wow. Uh, yes, laughing and learning from the author's interviews and reading the books recommended. Be More Pirate is amazing. Also, The Last Witch, superb reading, with much appreciation. Uh, Jane, thank you very much indeed. Nikki Holland says, The King's Witch, which we talked about in a previous podcast, is a dark, intriguing, spellbinding novel. The story wraps itself around you, threads itself through you, and clings to your subconscious as you travel through your modern-day routines and experiences. The story felt real, possible and authentic. Thank you, Nikki. Uh, Helen Vickers uh, writes this. I'm Matt. Obviously, I love the podcast and have told so many people about it, but I feel I must email in relation to a book recommended on your edition with Melvin Burgess. Now, this was out by Natsuo Carino, and um, Helen says, this is an amazing book. I was lucky, or unlucky, shall we say, to have read it while I lived in Japan. The book became a firm favourite amongst my expat girlfriends and I. Uh, I think it's safe to say it took over our lives. We don't eat a convenience store bento box for months afterwards. Uh, Totally rooting for the women in the story. Just brilliant. I spookily found myself in the park in Tokyo where something is buried and almost ran out screaming and had to remind myself it was fiction, that I was safe. Uh, Nobody does scary writing like the Japanese and out is excellent. Keep up the good work with the podcast. Thank you, Helen. Gary Fletcher, this is my first ever book review, but you did ask, so here goes. I've just finished Bill Clinton and James Patterson's The President is Missing. It was really well paced, short, snappy chapters, a pleasure to read. You feel uh, real insight into the presidency as Bill Clinton is one of the few with inside knowledge, what it really feels like to be there. 
and the inner turmoil some decisions uh, can bring. There is a twist and turns plenty and some great action sequences. The story, though, is complex, explained very well. You feel satisfied when you finish the book. I would definitely recommend this engrossing political thriller. And Sarah Hall uh, emailed in to say, uh, to answer your question about the book that got away, I, I would have to say A Different Kind of Daughter, The Girl Who Hid from the Taliban in Plain Sight by Maria Torpakai. I must, I've, I've read this as well. I had We had uh, Maria on the Radio 2 show a couple of years ago. It is a, an outstanding book. I'd really recommend it. Um, but Sarah goes on, I read it a year ago. I still think about it often. It's the autobiographical account of Pakistan's number one female squash player and has so many angles to it it's hard to know where to start uh, war religion oppression gender many angles to it uh, but uh, ultimately it's the story of maria's tenacity and her parents unflinching support in very difficult circumstances and for the reader it challenges the single story of so many news reports that reinforce stereotypes to no one's benefit well worth a read uh, there is sport in it there's boxing and the squash in it there is one sequence where she is playing squash and a bomb goes off outside and it it, it, it reads like a thriller. It's re- I absolutely recommend that book, definitely. You know, I mentioned Torchy the Battery Boy. Yes, you did, that, that I contended didn't exist and yeah. was a figment of your imagination. Uh, Ginny W., I have my mum's puppet of Torchy, lives right. in the wardrobe. Um, and you you took the mickey out of Torchy the Battery Boy. I did, I did a little. You, you yes, I didn't see what his special power was at all, just other torch. than being in a room where it's dark. Uh, Julie Bourne. So, Simon and Matt, in your last podcast, Simon mentioned a fictional character who was a boy that was also a torch. (laughs) I mean, you know. Although I don't remember that character, I do recall one who was a hot water bottle. (laughs) Wow, imagine what powers. Oh, but it's a bit cold in bed. Julie says, never fear, I'm here with my hot water bottle boy. I think his name was Walter. And he flew over the houses, a bit like Peter Pan. No one seems to remember, oh. Walter. Hope you have better luck than Torchy. Well, hang on, the- he's got the power of flight. I mean, surely that trumps being able to turn yourself into a hot water bottle. No, I think he is a hot water bottle. He is a hot water bottle that can he's fly. He's a boy. He's a hot water bottle that is a boy that can fly. Does anyone remember that? Somebody's mixing up their uh, powers here, I think. Susan Metcalf, crikey, Torchy the battery boy, so freaked me out as a kid. Uh, but not as much as Twizzle the broomstick man. <laughs> Give me rag, tiger, bobtail any day. So now we've got the three powers. We've got okay. a torch, a hot water bottle that can mm. fly, and and twizzle the broomstick can, man. Can it be a coincidence that all of these superheroes came through when there were quite a lot of drugs being consumed by authors? I'm going to say it's no coincidence at all. How dare you? Oh, well, very much Spoiled so. my childhood. Indeed. So what have you been reading then? In, in the week that we've had off, what have you read that's uh, interesting? Uh, I'm reading the new uh, Lee Child. Oh, really? Does he stop off at a town he's never been to before and meet lovely lady? Could do. <laughs> I'm hoping that Lee will come on the show. Oh, really? Good. Yes. Right. Excellent. Actually, add that to the list. <laughs> anyway, enough of the nonsense. Yeah. Let's have a little bit of class, Matt. And when Indeed. you say class, few authors represent class greater. When I say class, I mean, you know, as in very good, rather than class division and warfare. <laughs> oh, which, which apparently we now have to say, do we? Uh, All right. The Sebastian Fox. Hello, Sebastian. How are Hello, you? Hello, Simon. How are you? It's very nice to see you. Uh, Paris Echo is brand new from Sebastian. You've been a while. Where have you been? Uh, I've been in Paris. Um, well, it's about three years, I think, since I published a book. And I was in America, as you are sometimes, and uh, driving up towards the wine country Mm -hmm. with my wife in California. And I suddenly turned to her and said, I think there's a book for me in Paris. 
And she said, what do you think it is? I said, well, I won't know until I go there, but I'm sure there's something there. So she didn't say, not France again. <laughs> no, because she's a wise woman and she really, she knows. <laughs> Why didn't you just say, can we go to France? <laughs> well, because I didn't want her to come. <laughs> it had to be a, a solo venture. It had to be solo oh, is this, venture. Is this you off for like six months or something? Or uh, two months. Uh, and then I went, that was in the beginning of 2016, spring 2016. And then I came back to London with three notebooks full. I didn't write anything for a bit, but I, I, I felt I'd trapped the beast. I had it in the books, in the notebooks. And then I started writing at the beginning of 2017. Okay, uh, Matt, describe the uh, the cover that we're looking at. Yes, here. so we have we have a very dark uh, lower half of, of the book, uh, but what we can see is a woman walking, or shot from her knees down. She's walking quickly down some stone steps uh, in Black Hills, and then picked out in shiny gold letters, Sebastian Falks, uh, with Paris Echo in white across the centre. I'm I'm intrigued by the way you've assembled that. Then is that the, the way you would always work? That you would go and write down lots and lots of stuff, and then from those notes, you know, create a story? No, it, every book I've written has come about a different way. Um, and this one just came this way. I, I felt there was something there for me. And, you know, it was actually quite... Um, pe people in this country and indeed very much in America have this wonderful view of Paris as this romantic, gorgeous, beautiful city, great food, romance, pavement, cafes, accordion music and so on. I've never really found it like that. I've always found it rather... A, it's a very beautiful city, obviously, but I found it a difficult place to get on and be happy in. Um, and I thought, rather than grumble about that, let's go and find out why this is. Let's go and get to grips with the city. OK. So just introduce us to the world that you've created in Paraseco and Hannah uh, and Tarek, who are our kind of mm. main protagonists. Well, the book is set in 2006, so it's, it's, it's pretty much modern, up-to-date. The only thing that's missing is Uber, oddly enough. Um, but everything else is there. It's the modern world, modern communications. Um, and Tarek is a young boy, a 19-year-old, who's run away from his home in Morocco, in Tangier, um, because he's confused and he he's looking for... He's looking for himself, I suppose you'd say. But he's very uneducated, he's quite ignorant. Things come to him and he doesn't really understand them, so... Tarek's life is a bit like that of a pinball in a machine. He just bangs around from one obstacle to the next with very wide-eyed. So Paris to him is overwhelming. He's never seen an underground railway system before and he doesn't understand all... He can speak French, but he doesn't understand the street names or the metro station names, all of which in Paris are named after famous people. He hasn't heard of any of them. Uh, on the other hand, we have Hannah, who is a rather earnest American woman in her early 30s who's not, who really understands how things fit together. And that's partly because of her nature, but also because she is a historian. And she has been sent to Paris by her department for a year to research the lives of French women in Paris under the German occupation 1940 to 44. So what the book really looks at is through their responses to the city and their relationships with one another, which are entirely platonic, I should say, and with other people in the book, 
It looks at two different ways of living your life, the very, very well-informed, cultural, historically aware, and then that of a younger person who really knows little and has to make it up as it goes along. And the question the book is asking, not directly but suggesting, is if you are very well-educated and you know a lot about history and contingency and circumstance and culture, does that necessarily mean you live a richer, better, more worthwhile life? And is it also about overlooked histories? You know, the fact that maybe that what women went through under the Nazis is still not well understood and French colonial history, sometimes, the, you know, the French will be looking away from that as well. Yes. I mean, Hannah, her interest is in, in women's lives and she's not writing about Marie Antoinette. She's writing about, um, you know, madame's or mademoiselle so-and-so that no one's ever heard of who worked in a shop or in a factory. What was life like for them? Uh, that's her interest in history. So absolutely the overlooked but then also, in a bigger sense, the fact that uh, the events of the occupation were very difficult for France to get to grips with after the war as a culture, as a people. I mean, the truth of the matter is that a very large number of French citizens would have preferred the Germans to win the war. They backed them throughout most of the hostilities and only quite reluctantly came round in the end to thinking the resistance might be a better bet and the Allies were a better bet. Uh, and that's that's been very difficult for French people to get to grips with. It's a sort of rumbling, grumbling thing that's still going on. And it took 50 years before President Chirac uh, finally admitted that the French government of, of the time had been complicit in the Holocaust and in deporting Jewish people from France to Auschwitz. And also uh, there is the question of Algeria. And my book is set just before the terrible atrocities in Paris, the the Bataclan killings, the Charlie Hebdo shootings and so on. But very gently, it's not at all a preachy book, I, I hope you'd agree. What it's suggesting is that France's problem with radical uh, is Islamic fundamentalism is slightly different from ours because uh, France was the colonial power in Algeria particularly, but also Morocco and Tunisia. And therefore, the feelings of resentment and antagonism that have lingered on in France are actually much more connected to their history than to some wild idea of religious fanaticism. Uh, Matt, this is Matt Williams now on Sebastian Folks's Paris Echo. Yes, I love this. And uh, we, uh, we were good enough to speak to uh, Sebastian for, for one of his previous books, but um, I, I really enjoyed this. And you've already touched on the, the, the problem that Parisians had during the war, during the occupation. You, Tariq had no idea, for example, that, that um, France had been occupied during the Second World War. And this split, as you've talked, about collabor between collaboration and, and resistance. And the fact that, as you say, there were so many, um, well, particularly Parisians, who just wanted the war over, wanted the Germans to win. They were surrounded by uh, propaganda, uh, talking about the, 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 the problems with the, with the Brits and the Americans. And yet, when the war is ending, that change, the, 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 the U-turn is so speedy from, uh, from people wanting the, the, the Germans to win to suddenly switching to, to Charles de Gaulle's side. Yes, I mean, what de Gaulle did uh, in 1944 was uh, magnificent, really. I mean, to be fair, he had kept alive the spirit of a free France alone with very little support from fellow citizens in, from London uh, most of the time. And his job when uh, at the end of the war was to allow the Allies to present to the French, to, to ask permission, really, from Eisenhower and Churchill 
that he could present to the French people the fact that France had liberated itself with the help of the Allies by force of arms and that the true spirit of France was, was that of the resistance and not that of the Vichy government. But at the same time, one, and you know, de Gaulle did a great job in, in, in not allowing a civil war to break out, which could easily have happened in 1944 between people who supported different sides within France. But at the same time, I think one mustn't be too down on, on French people for what happened in those years, because we talk about collaboration as though it's a filthy, dirty thing, but it, it wasn't. It was the stated aim of the government. And I think it's better if you use the word cooperation. And when uh, Marshal Pétain, who was the leader of France, signed a treaty with, with Hitler, he said, today I enter into the path of collaboration with the occupier. And he got for France much better terms than any other occupied country in Europe was able to achieve. So... To begin with, the idea of working, accepting what had happened, they had been defeated militarily, and then working for the best possible arrangement for your citizens was not in the first place such a terrible thing to do. I, I, I loved as well, I, I'm guessing this is based on reality, what people were doing with their tickets when, mm. they were getting off the, when they were getting off the metros, that sort of pockets of resistance there. Yes, resistance was, was not very popular in France to begin with because if, if you were a hot-headed young French resistor and you, you shot a German officer, the Germans would simply kill 50, 60, 70 French people in reprisals. So a lot of people were saying to hot-headed youngsters, don't do this. Um, but one rather effective way of silent resistance in Paris particularly was to take your metro ticket and fold it twice lengthwise and then once across into the letter V, which you could leave and throw down on the steps of the metro as you were leaving. And this was particularly in communist areas of Paris, like Belleville, traditional working-class areas. And it drove the Nazis absolutely mad, this sort of dumb insolence, and they could never catch people. But it was, it was effective in under undermining the morale of the Germans to some extent. Is the um, cooperation that you were talking about, I wonder if that actually, we were moving off topic just a little bit, reflects the debate that was happening in the UK, which I, I think it was Halifax who was saying, we need to cooperate because they're going to flatten us. And then it was Churchill who was saying, no, I don't think we will. So I'm just wondering whether the debate, although it was different because Britain wasn't occupied, clearly but is reflected in similar political conversations that were happening here. Uh, I'm sure it was. I mean, the, the difference, I suppose, in France was that there was a debate after the fact. They had been defeated, whereas in this country it was a debate before the fact. But it looked likely that we would be defeated. And, I mean, I read accounts of, of the debates that took place in the 30s, and I don't think that all the British politicians who said, look, let's deal with the real world, let's try to make some accommodation with this aggressor because we really don't want another way... We've the First World War had ended, don't let's forget, only sort of 16 years before. Uh, 10 million men killed in Europe. The last thing anyone wanted was uh, another war. Um, but I suppose one of the differences is that we had Winston Churchill and uh, he, he was not minded that way. And this was one thing that drove French people mad. They thought, you know, we have the best army in the world, if even we have lost... What on earth is Britain doing prolonging this needless agony and bloodshed? Mm. Let them be reasonable. Let them treat as we have done with the, with the inevitable. Given then that this is uh, dealing with the ghosts of Vichy and the ghosts of Algeria and colonialism, and, and all, does this make it a controversial book in France or, or an uncomfortable read in France? Um, that I don't know because as yet I don't have a French publisher, um, which I hope 
to find in due course. But one of the, I mean, one of the, the ways in which French people have tended to deal with criticism, especially from abroad, is to ignore it. And so I would be very surprised if, if and when this book is published in France, there would be a big outcry. That is not the French way. The French way is to listen politely to criticism and wait for it to stop and to go away. Um, I don't view this as a particularly critical book of France, and uh, I hope that it celebrates a great deal of what is, is wonderful about Paris and France and French civilization. Um, it's also, I think we should say, I hope it's quite funny in parts. We're making it sound like a sort of discourse on the morality of history, which is, is in the book. But Tarek, as a 19-year-old boy obsessed by girls um, and uh, drugs and booze, is quite a comic character, yes. I think. Uh, we'll pick up some of these points in just a moment. We'll be back with Sebastian Folks in a second. This is Books of the Year. Sebastian Fox is here uh, with Paris Echo and you were just telling us about uh, the lighter moments and I just want to pick up something about Tarek. What a vain kid he is. <laughs> I mean, I've never known anyone look in the mirror quite so often and, and find what he's looking at to be quite lovely. Well, it is a self-portrait, really. So. <laughs> Obviously, yeah. But, wh um, but, wh but where did... I I'm intrigued because you told us about how you went to France and you filled your books mm. with, with notes. When you were travelling around, uh, when you are on the metro, did you see your Tarek? You know, did, you, did you see your Hannah? Did you see someone looking at the reflection in the, in the window and thinking, ah, oh, OK. Well, I quite often look at myself in the reflection of the tube and, you know, how the, the curve of the glass, you, you know, it elongates your face and puts it into funny shapes like a, a fairground hall of mirrors. But... Um, I had also lived in Paris myself as a student, age 17, so a tiny bit younger than uh, Tarek, and I'd read a lot more books than, than he has. But um, part of his um, funny adolescent way of going about life was based on my recollection of Paris when I was, when I was a kid. Um, and the book is quite a lot about doubles and um, ghosts and alternative... Uh, versions of yourself. And, you know, the truth is that a lot of boys are very narcissistic. You know, I remember as a teenager looking at myself in the mirror endlessly. Um, but with Tarek, is something a bit more than that. Um, he, he sometimes has the sense of standing outside himself and seeing himself as a second person. And this is a, a theme that goes through the book a fair bit. I, I'll tell you another thing that stood out for me, because I um, lived in, in Paris uh, for about a year when I was probably a little bit older than you in my early 20s. And part of the reason that I loved Paris was the metro. I loved the metro. And this is interlaced through your book, is, is Tariq, in fact, both main characters, travelling around this great city via what I would argue is one of the best uh, public transport systems. And I, I, I wonder whether it, it, it was chiming with me because I, I, I have this strong affection for, for the metro system. And I wondered whether it was the same with you or, or was I just reading into it because I have these prejudices towards the uh, metro. Uh, no, I, uh, the metro is... Um, a, it's a brilliant system. Um, it works very well. B, it has this remarkable scent, which you don't get in any yes. other yeah, yeah, yeah. No, any other it. underground system in the world, which you could be blindfolded and mm. someone would just blow that scent towards you. What is it? Oh, yes. Con what, I don't know. What? I've read lots of different accounts of what might, what might cause it, but I've heard it described in different ways as the smell of tarred hemp rope mixed with 
old Gitan Caporal tobacco. The first time you the first time you smell it, it's not necessarily a, a pleasant smell, but it's it's absolutely distinct. It then becomes yeah. associated with all your memories of Paris: yeah. happy, sad, bad, you know, young, old, and so on. And Paris, I think, is a city which you can go back to and visit many times in your life, but you're always aware of the first time that you went there. It there has a sort of haunting quality, and. Um, I came across this line, very famous line, actually, in Baudelaire, a 19th century French poet saying, oh, Paris, teeming city where every day the daylight ghosts confront the passerby. And it is does seem to be a city of ghosts. And the women that Tarek looks at on the metro and fantasises about and then thinks of following... They're sort of versions of the women who would have travelled on the metro under the German occupation. They're versions of the women I used to see as a 17-year-old. And they were versions of the rather chic Parisian women I saw when I was um, invest, you know, researching the book a couple of years ago. Uh, and the metro is a funny place because while you're on it, all identity is suspended and everyone is anonymous. And as soon as these glamorous creatures go back up onto the boulevard or the street and disappear into their rather boring office jobs, I'm sure they become much less alluring, less ghost-like and so on. But just for that moment, uh, it, is a, it is a strange place of, meet, of meetings. You've, you've written so much about France and so many of your stories have been said in France. It sounds as though just listening to you speak there, it still has a spell on you. It does. I mean, it's important to stress French people regard Paris as being completely non-French. I mean, it's a, it's a law unto itself. But I do think that one of the great things about being British, and I am a very patriotic Brit, is the proximity of France. 18 miles away is a world in which they do everything completely differently. Um, and an intelligent, educated French person's idea of France is not the same as an intelligent, educated British person's idea of Britain, but just with the love object changed from one country to another. Uh, in this country, we're slightly ashamed about being patriotic, although we, we're happy to cheer on the football teams, but when it comes to anything more, we think, oh, getting into sort of UKIP country here, you know, National Front, whatever, British National Party. So we're a bit shy about that. But in France, that's not the case. Patriotism and belief in the idea of France is much more respectable. But, uh, and it was actually, it's been incredibly important in French history. I mean, we were talking about de Gaulle, who single-handedly kept alive uh, almost single-handedly, it seemed, this flame, this idea of France. And many times in French history, uh, that flame has been kept alive. But French people believe, and the difference, one thing, difference between British colonialism and French is that we were in it largely for the money. Though that's not to say we didn't, uh, in some cases and in some countries, introduce good systems, railways and so on. But uh, France, uh, their colonial uh, programme was based on the idea of bringing civilization. They called it une mission civilisatrice. And that meant even exporting Roman Catholicism, which was not part of France at home after the revolution, but they would, uh, they would export a, a Christianity to, for instance, Indochina. Uh, and they, they wanted very much to be, uh, not to use another French term, they used une puissance musulmane, meaning a, 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 a Muslim power. By, and they, their hope was that in North Africa and the Middle East, uh, they would 
bring all the benefits of French civilization, rational thought, science, literature, and so on. And at the same time, I'm not sure how much they actually wished to convert from a religious point of view. But it was, it was, it was a very high-minded project. I mean, really rather more high-minded than uh, the British... Is that why some would say they've been slower to adjust to not being a colonial power? I mean, obviously still uh, echoes of their uh, colonies still there, but, you know, they, they do seem to be slightly slower to adjust to a, a changed position in the world. I think so, partly that and partly because the, the, their relinquishing of their empire came about largely because they were booted out, first of all, in Vietnam, Indochina, where they were humiliatingly defeated by the North Vietnamese before the Americans were. The Americans learned nothing, apparently, from this. And then secondly, in Algeria, where after an appalling civil war, essentially, de Gaulle said... I think, you know, the Algerians have won. I'm simplifying here tremendously, but they granted Algerian independence. Um, so it, these were traumas to overcome. And, you know, it was easier for Britain in a way because we tended, apart from, you know, Kenya and various other places, to grant independence peacefully and through political process. Uh, you were talking about when you went to Paris with your notebooks. So are you writing quicker? Do you think, uh, is your process slow, speeding up, slowing down? How Reflecting on this book now, where do you think it, it sits? Every book is different. That's, that's one of the things I like best about being a novelist. Uh, partly it's frustrating because you never seem to learn. You look back at previous books and think, how on earth did I do that? Um, but also it's exciting to do things in a different way every time. The process itself... As far as speed is concerned, once I'm once I know what I'm doing, uh, it's quite quick. And where um, do you write? I write now at home. I used to have a little studio down the road, but um, my daughter lives there now. So I now and my our elder son uh, lives in Madrid. So I now write in what was his bedroom. How many words would be a good day? Never less than a thousand. Um, probably I average about fourteen hundred words a day when it's you know when I'm in the swing. Who gets to read it first? Uh, would be my wife reads it first and gives and she always she's always very nice she always says how much she likes <laughs> and I have to press her and say no really really and uh, she will uh, she, she can she's a very good close reader so she'll pick up all the misprints and all that but she she also has quite good bigger editorial suggestions all right uh, so we have some uh, some questions which we always uh, end each interview uh, with uh, the last book you really really enjoyed. I just read a book by a friend of mine called Anthony Quinn called Our Friends in Berlin, uh, which is a wartime thriller, which I really enjoyed. Is there a book that you regularly give as a gift? Um, no, there isn't. But if there were to be, it would... Birdsong. <laughs> no, I think that would be vain. Uh, I've got this. <laughs> I give High Windows by Philip Larkin poems. Wow. Uh, what book do you remember being read to you as a child? The book I remember most is 101 Dalmatians, um, which I begged my mother to read to me even after I was able to read myself. Have you ever cried reading a book? Uh, uh, frequently. Um, the book I cried very hard at when I was about 14 was David Copperfield. Uh, I remember reading the last page, and it's very difficult to cry with your eyes open. I really want to keep my eyes open to read the words, but at the same time I was sobbing, so the resultant sounds were very peculiar. <laughs> Uh, one that got away, a book that should have been massive, you thought was going to be massive but wasn't. Um, 
Oh, well, so many. But uh, a writer called Henry Green, I think, is a wonderful writer and no one ever reads his book. So I'd, I'd pick uh, Loving by Henry Green. You're doing very well for just off the top of your head yes. coming up with answers to this. Is there a book on your shelf that you love and no one else does? Yes, I think Loving by Henry <laughs> Green. <laughs> right, <so> no, one <laughs> Clearly no one's ever going to read it. Whose books do you own the most of? I own a heck of a lot of Iris Murdoch. I slightly collected her at one point. I rather liked the the hardback jackets. I've got an awful lot of John Updike, Henry Green, Philip Roth, Jane Austen, Martin Amos I've got a lot of. Um, Is that enough? Yeah, I'm going to read some Henry Green when I go home. You've talked about where you do your writing. Where and when do you do most of your reading? Uh, I do most of my reading in a sort of hideous reclining leather armchair, rather like Joey and Chandler have in oh, yeah. Friends, which my wife won't have in the sitting room, so it's <laughs> hidden away somewhere. The first book you bought with your own money? Almost certainly Alistair MacLean, um, HMS oh. Ulysses. <laughs> Superb. Uh, is there a book you've used to try to impress a potential partner? Certainly not. Uh, <laughs> if you exclude my own, I suppose. Um, the Girl at the Lyon Door, my second novel... I suppose uh, I would have probably given that to uh, my then-girlfriend, now wife. Uh, And this is quite a tricky one to finish with, I think. Is there a book that you would love to step inside where the world that's been created has been so engaging and wonderful you like to be a part of it? Um, Well, I I rather like uh, the Moscow and St Petersburg of Tolstoy, so I'd, I'd quite like to step inside that. Um, I think that would be a, got a lot of parties with a lot of pretty girls and then dashing off and doing heroic things at um, Battle of Borodino, then coming back and found that the girl was a little bit older now and a bit more pretty, and that would be pretty fun, I think. Uh, Sebastian, it's always a pleasure to speak to you. What are you working on next? Do you know? Is it too soon to say? But I'm obviously I'm asking on behalf of your publisher. Uh, I'm going to write a play next. I'm going to Italy for three weeks to a writer's retreat. I'm rather scared by Is that the another conversation with your wife? <laughs> I feel as though I need to go to Italy. Alone. And I'm, yeah, alone, but she's allowed to join me for the last three days, poor old thing. So I've got a play next and then I'll, there'll be a novel. The audible version uh, of Paris Echo is narrated by Elam Hassas and Deborah McBride. You obviously had voices in your head, Sebastian, when you were writing it. What do you make of the... Uh, the audible well, version? I haven't heard the full version, but I've heard... Um, Clips, representative clips from their agents of both, and I think they're extremely good. Uh, Paris Echo is new from Sebastian Falk. Sebastian, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you very much indeed, both of you. So big thank you to uh, Sebastian Falk for coming in. It's he al- is classy, isn't he? He is. It's almost like a literary event mm. when he comes in. By the way, that last question, about is there a world that you'd like to step into? Uh-huh. Uh, it was... Uh, got an email from Rachel who says, this is a, a question, suggestion for your Q&A, was there a book which you wanted to climb into and become part of? It's a great question. Live yeah. the character's life, be a part of the time and place. Uh-huh. Happy weekend, Simon and Matt. Thank you. Thanks for a laugh out loud mini pod. My hair looks gorgeous now the gloop is off, by the way. Good, good to hear. Anyway, yes, I'm happy. So Rachel, thank you very much indeed. So if you have a suggestion for a question, although might be so many by the end of it. Maybe we'll have to lose a question if we're going to Well, yes, I mean, they get in on merit, don't they? And and I mentioned the Audible uh, uh, book, which Sebastian uh, liked very much, but we have a special offer. Yes, we do. So if you go to audible.co.uk forward slash books of the year, and it's important that you do that address and no other. So audible.co.uk forward slash books of the year, you get a month's free trial and you get a free book with no commitment to... to No commitment at all. No commitment at all. So you could... Could get Sebastian's uh, book read by those people he mentioned, yes. uh, he, who he's very happy with, 
And yeah, so audible.co.uk uh, forward slash books of the year. And I, do, I do want to as well mention a book that I've been reading uh, by Jamie Paradise called Nighttime Cool, which is Jamie Paradise is a pen name for uh, someone you might know called Jamie Jackson, who is a football writer. And I spoke to him a few years ago, but he, he'd always wanted to write uh, a novel. And he has, uh, it's called Nighttime Cool. It's very much in the style of, of John Niven, who I think is going to be coming on the podcast Fairly in soon, a few yeah. weeks' time. Uh, Jake Arnott as well. If you like that, you'll like this. Um, but uh, he's basically done it on, on crowdfunding, and I, I think it's well worth your time. So that's what I've been reading. All right. Thank you very much, Steve, for that. And uh, we'll, we will be returning to having uh, two authors in at the same time. But yes. when they're coming fast and furious, we'll do one at a time. And uh, the next podcast that you get from us is a Kate Atkinson special. Oh, yes. Because she's a big cheese. That's what she, she is. is rather large. Kate yes. Atkinson is our special guest on the next podcast. Thank you very much, Deep, for downloading us. Tell all your friends. Please do. Not that we're desperate. <laughs> <laughs>